And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we once again come as beggars, as hungry children, ready to be fed. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what this has to do with us, how this relates to our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your word to strengthen us in our walk with you and to conform us increasingly into the image of Christ. We also pray for our children who are in attendance here today, and we pray for their salvation in due time. We pray for the parents that they would disciple well when it comes to their children. And of course, we speak for children both in the womb and outside of the womb, Lord. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would draw them to you, draw them to yourself in your time. We pray for their salvation. Oh Lord, bless this time and may it be used to glorify Christ. For it's in his name that we gather and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 26. We're going to be in Psalm 26 today, of course, the first Sunday of every month. Uh, we are in the Psalms the rest of the Sundays of the month. Uh, we are in the Gospel according to John, but today we are in Psalm 26. Does anybody need a Bible? Um, if, if anybody needs a Bible, just go ahead and put a hand outside the window and we'll make sure somebody gets one to you. Everybody Okay. All right, otherwise there are apps uh, that, have, uh, that have the Bible on them. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 26, verses 1 to 12 today. Now, unless you have been, I don't know, living in a cave or something for the past few months, you're probably aware of the fact that there is a new phenomenon in our culture in which an individual is pressured to conform to the ideals of a given group of people. The reward for conforming to their image is acceptance, at least for now, temporarily, at least, at least until the next virtue signal is due, right? But the cost for refusing to do this, the cost for refusing to conform, the penalty for thinking differently than the group, for thinking for yourself, is what is being referred to as being canceled, canceled. This is what's known as cancel culture. Its goal, the goal of cancel culture, is to destroy the lives of those who hold a different opinion, belief, or perspective than the group. It is both anti-intellectual and it is totalitarian, and there is no place in it for Christians. Let me give you an example of it. This past week, Actor Dean Cain, who played Clark Kent in the Lois and Clark series, um, he spoke out against the idea of defunding the police, which, of course, a very large uh, portion of society is calling for right now. Well, Dean Clark spoke against the idea of defunding police. Apparently, somebody had complained that the police are always portrayed as the good guys in TV and movies. And they had complained about the damage that that image of cops being good guys was doing to society. And so Dean Cain comes on TV and he notes that that simply isn't true. And he very quickly rattles off the names of about 20 TV shows and movies which portray the police as being 
being very, very corrupt. Uh, and people, when, when he did this, when he contradicted the narrative, people went absolutely berserk. After all, this man, Dean Cain, played a poor farmer whose greatest arch nemesis was a multi-billionaire named Lex Luthor. Cain, people were saying all over social media, never should have had the privilege of playing Clark Kent. And so thousands and thousands and thousands of people were vowing to never again watch another movie or TV show that he had any part in. He was canceled. That is cancel culture. Now, let me just be very straightforward with you. If you want to be a faithful Christian in the world today, cancel culture will come for you. It will come for you because you cannot affirm all of the sinful behavior that today's culture affirms. You cannot partake of the world's value system as a Christian. And that's exactly why James wrote in James 4.4, 4, do, uh, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now hold on to that thought. Because that principle is actually central to the psalm that we're going to be looking at today. The psalm that we covered last month was Psalm 25, which was titled, A Prayer from the Depths of Despair. And the central theme of that psalm, if you remember, was really kind of how to pray when you're at the end of your rope. Today's psalm is somewhat similar. It, it kind of model, it models prayer for us, but um, kind of from a, a different perspective, a different position. Not from the end of your proverbial rope, so to speak, but rather it's how to pray when you are falsely accused. How to pray when you are falsely accused. Or, or you might say how to pray when you're accused, but you haven't done anything wrong. Does that ever happen today? Do people get accused of things that they, where, where they did no wrong? Absolutely, it happens all the time, especially through social media mobs. And in a world where mob-ruled cancel culture is becoming increasingly common, increasingly popular, you might want to keep this psalm in your back pocket if you choose to serve God instead of the mob. You might need it. If anybody knew what it was like to be falsely accused by man. It was David. God had ordained that David would be the king of Israel, the next king of Israel, which made King Saul feel threatened, and thus David had to run for his life, and Saul went in pursuit, seeking to murder him. That's probably the situation that resulted in David writing the psalm that we're going to be looking at today. But the point of this psalm is simply this. The point of this psalm is that God's approval is ultimately the only approval that matters. God's approval is ultimately the only approval that matters. If God can say that we're innocent, then it doesn't matter who else might think we're guilty. Now this is not a psalm about how to avoid this mob style of justice called cancel culture. No, there may be no way to avoid it. But if we're being honest, we know that there is always a cost of following Jesus. It's just getting more expensive than it used to be. 
just like everything else, right? Rather, this psalm is going to help us see how to deal with it if and when we are falsely accused. How to keep living when the world around us doesn't approve of us. How to press on. How to continue to find peace and joy in life, even if you or I should be canceled by the culture. Now the last thing I'll I'll say before we continue about cancel culture is that if you are a Christian, you cannot participate in it. It is totally void of true biblical Christian forgiveness. It offers no grace. It offers no restoration. It offers no charity. It is indeed antithetical to the gospel, and as such, it is wicked. It's sinful. And so, as Christians, neither you nor I can have any part of it. We must cancel, cancel culture, even if it costs us dearly. So let's start by looking at verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 26. A Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. David starts by making his request known immediately. He says, vindicate me, O Lord. The Hebrew word there literally means judge. Judge me, O Lord. Now, what kind of person would invite God, uh, perhaps even challenge God, to judge them? An innocent person would. An innocent person would. And that's the only kind of person that would ever dare to offer such an invitation to God. But that's what's necessary for David's vindication. That's why he's using, that's why he's issuing this invitation to God. It's because he knew that whatever he had been accused of, he had not done. And so he's asking for vindication. He's asking for justice to be served in this case. And the reason that he turns to God is because he knows, because he believes that God knows all things, that God is omniscient. He searches the heart. God searches the heart. Man judges from outward appearances, but God judges the heart. He's looking for motivations. He's looking for the things that we would keep secret. God knows the heart, and he sees it more clearly than you or I ever, ever could. And David believed that God was capable of doing this. He also knew, he also believed that God is sovereign and thus that God had the ability and the authority to not only sustain him, but to protect him if he was indeed, as he's claiming to be, an innocent man. So the basis for David's vindication is what we see next. The basis of his request is twofold. First, he appeals to his integrity, and then he appeals to his faith. Look at what he says there. He says, I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord. Those two things are the basis that he seeks vindication upon. Now we should see that these two concepts actually go hand in hand. If you live a morally upstanding life, it should be driven by faith in God. 
Faith motivates integrity. Faith motivates integrity. What, what is integrity, by the way? That's important for us to know, not just because it's important for understanding uh, this particular psalm, but because all Christians should have integrity. All Christians should be able to say exactly what David is saying here. All Christians should have integrity. Integrity is a concept which considers the possibility for a person to pretend to act differently, perhaps hypocritically, depending on who's around. And so a person with integrity is going to be the same regardless of who they're with, regardless of who's around. They'll be the same in secret when they feel like nobody's looking as they are in public when they know that everybody's looking. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to have integrity. Let me give you an example. Uh, last year, I was buying some cherries just right over here at the Chevron station across the street. When I looked down as I was heading back to my car and I saw a wallet on the ground. Now, I could have just picked up that wallet and headed straight to my car, and the woman who was working at the cherry stand never would have even noticed. She never would have known. But here's the thing I would have known. I would have known. And so I asked her if it was hers. It wasn't. And so I opened it right in front of her so that she could see how much money was in there and I could see how much money was in there. $200 in $20 bills fell out. So we both counted it. We found the driver's license of the person who owns it. Uh, she recognized that he had actually just left her stand about five minutes prior. So I gave her my personal information. I gave her my driver's license and I said, I'll be back. I'm going to bring this to this guy. Uh, she knew how much was supposed to be returned to him, and so did I. And just as I was getting ready to drive over to his residence, he pulled up and we were able to return his wallet and his money to him. Now, in that moment, if I had been lacking integrity, and believe me, it's, it's just as much a temptation for me as it is for anybody to, to lack integrity. I have a flesh nature too. Pastors have a flesh nature too. But I could have very easily just walked off with, $200. But I, like David, in that moment had a firm conviction that God's always watching. God knows. And God cares about how his people act. Integrity means that you are the same person whether people are watching or not. It means you don't try to keep anything secret. If you have integrity, you don't mind if your spouse or if the police or anyone wants to look at your browsing history on your cell phone or on your computer. To walk in integrity means you have nothing to hide, either before man nor before God. And David knew that he had nothing to hide in this instance. Now, it might actually startle you to read David writing these words, after all, we know that he was not always the nicest guy, was he? He was not an innocent man. We know that he was often guilty of heinous sin, adultery, murder, covetousness, bearing false witness. I mean, you can go right down the list. David was guilty of them all. And yet the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. See, David knew that he was guilty of all these sins. And yet he has the audacity to ask God to examine him and to test him. And of all people, we might be asking ourselves, how can David, of all people, have the audacity 
to make the claim that he's walking and he's, he's walked in God's truth? And the answer to that is, well, first of all, let's remember that David probably wrote this before committing many of the great sins that he's recorded as having committed in Scripture. But let's also acknowledge that that may not necessarily be the case. It's possible that he wrote this later in life, in a, in a situation that we're not aware of. I mean, even if he did write this in his youth, before committing all the sins that he so infamously committed, how can he or anyone truthfully say that he's walked in God's truth and thus can be examined and tested by God and pass the test? Can anyone of any age truly say, I've walked in God's truth? Yes, one person, one person can say that. Jesus can say that. But David knew that he was a sinner. He was aware of his sin. That's why he would write in Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 130, uh, verse 2, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So how could David say these things? The answer is because David walked by faith. David walked by faith. Even as a boy, he walked by faith. His faith was firmly set on God. His faith was firmly set on God's promises. And as such, even though he fell short of the glory of God, just like everybody else, even though he sinned, just like everybody sins, he was nevertheless constantly living in God's grace, which washed him clean. But in this case, it's clear that whatever he's being accused of, it simply isn't true. He's being wrongly accused of something here, he, but he has nothing to hide. He has nothing to hide. Now, as we consider this, what we see David doing, really, is seeking God's approval. He's seeking God's approval. He, he doesn't go to the court of man. He doesn't go before councils of princes and say, look at my life, I'm clean. No, he goes straight to God. He doesn't go to a friend to seek validation. He goes to God for God's approval, for God's vindication. Now, if you were to ask most people if they think that they are a good person, most people will tell you that they think that they are. Most people would say, yes, I, I am a good person. Yeah, I, I, I've, got, I've got integrity. Most people think they are good. The question, however, is why? Why is somebody a good person? Why does somebody follow a, a given set of, of moral principles? Why is somebody good? Is it because it's your opinion that following a certain set of behaviors will positively benefit society? Is it because you don't want to face the consequences of not doing what's expected of you? Maybe that means um, you know, of avoiding being arrested. Or, or maybe that means facing the mob and cancel culture. I don't think there's anything wrong, by the way, with somebody being deterred from some actions by the threat of consequences. But that should never be our primary motivation, especially for us as Christians. Not wanting to get caught can't be our primary motivation. Wanting to be good for society cannot be our primary motivation. So what should be our primary motivation? Love of God. 
Our love for God should be our primary motivation. And if you are a Christian, you should not only know this, but you should be living by this. Integrity is part of living all of your lives like an open book before God. By faith, as a Christian, you should be constantly aware of the fact that God sees all things. He knows all things. He sees our sin. He's aware of it. By faith, as Christians, we should also believe that God cares about sin. Indeed, that he hates sin. And by faith, as Christians, we must believe that God loves and will honor integrity. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes that God will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, for there is no partiality with God. That should be our motivation for having integrity. God knows. God cares about integrity. Integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. You can't fool God. You can't play an act with God. You can't pull one over on Him. He sees it all. He knows it all. And integrity has everything to do with living every single aspect of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. So David continues to plead the case for his integrity by pointing to the company that he kept. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. He says, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now back in Psalm 1, we saw the psalmist declare this from the outset, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And David is telling us that he has taken that counsel to heart and that he's lived by it. He doesn't sit with deceitful men. When he says he doesn't go with pretenders, he means he doesn't make close friends with hypocrites. Now, you've probably heard the colloquialism, the, the saying, birds of a feather flock together. That's actually a biblical concept. There, there's a biblical principle there. And, and there's a psychological, sociological principle there, too. And it's this. It's that people like to hang out and spend time with people who closely resemble themselves. That's kind of our nature. We gravitate toward people who are similar to us, who are very similar to us. We want to be around people who like to do the same types of things we like to do. We want to be around people who share our values. That's natural, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, although it can be. It can be. Now, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but how many of you guys wanted to cringe, by the way? when David says that he hates the assembly of evildoers. Now, we might look at that and say, oh, hate, that's, that's a really strong word. And people try to justify that, that hate biblically doesn't really mean hate. No, it does mean hate. He means he hates it. He means he can't stand it. 
And in our world today, we live in such a, a politically correct world, such a PC world, we're programmed to think that it's never acceptable to hate. That is a lie. That is a lie. In fact, it's logically impossible to love and yet not hate. If you love something, you necessarily hate whatever might damage it. Think of it this way, because it's actually part of love. If you love your child, you hate the person who would kidnap your child and harm your child, don't you? If you love your spouse, you hate the person who would attempt to seduce your spouse, don't you? Of course you do. And if you don't, if by chance you don't, it's because you're more emotionally apathetic toward your child or your spouse than you are loving of them. Because we want to protect the things that we love. So, if you love something, you necessarily hate something else. If you love freedom, for example, you necessarily hate tyranny. If you love tyranny, you necessarily hate freedom. See how that works? If you love, you necessarily hate. The fact is that what we hate says so much about what we love. What we hate says so much about what we love. If we love righteousness, what do you think we're going to hate? Unrighteousness. If you love the ways of the world, you hate the ways of God. That's why James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This, by the way, has everything to do with why we, as Christians, we cannot join forces with an organization, no matter how popular or no matter how powerful they might be, we cannot participate in the agenda of an organization that seeks to undo God's design for the family. Even while the rest of our culture, corporations around us, friends that we've known all of our lives who should know better, even while they are all bowing their knee to this organization, as Christians, we cannot, because we cannot be friends with the world. We cannot take part in the lawlessness that this organization is promoting that's taking place in the world around us. Why not? Because that's how the world acts. That's how the world acts. That's not how people who fear God act. People who fear God will have nothing to do with any organization that promotes sexual immorality, that promotes the destruction of the family structure, that promotes the searing of the individual's conscience, that promotes the overthrow through lawlessness of the government. We can't go along with that. We can't sign our name to the bottom of that document. Even if. Even if refusing to participate means being canceled. The world can cancel me all they want. They, they already have. They can cancel me all they want. I, I, I know that God never will cancel me. And God's approval is the only approval that matters to us as Christians. But the biblical principle here in verses 4 and 5 
is that the people who are your closest companions reveal a lot about what's going on in your heart. If you love righteousness and you hate sin, you're not going to enjoy being around people who hate righteousness and love sin. See, they're on the opposite side. We're not going to like being in their presence very much. Not for any prolonged period of time. We're not going to want to be in, in, in close relationships with that type of person. Doesn't that only make sense? That if you love righteousness and you're with somebody who hates righteousness, there's going to be a problem. And the same principle applies to the world. Because they love sin, a non-Christian isn't going to want to spend a considerable amount of time around somebody who hates sin. We see how this works right here. Note, note the contrast that we're about to see between the assembly of the wicked, which David says he hates, and the assembly of God's people. That's what we see in the next verses, verses 6 to 8. David says, I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I, might, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So on one hand, David says that he hates the assembly of evildoers, but on the other hand, he says that he loves the assembly of the saints. Let me ask you this. Can you say that? Can you say that you love the assembly of the saints? Do you look forward to going to church every week so that you can be around people who love you? and are also on this journey of being conformed to the image of Christ? You should. Because church is the one place that most of us can go during the week where you know that you will be surrounded by God's people. People who are on this journey with you. People who love you. People who share biblical values with you. People whose presence won't corrupt you, but will sanctify you. If you don't love that, I'll just say this, you're in a very dangerous place, spiritually speaking. Because Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He understands this principle. And so Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now this doesn't mean that you can't spend any time with non-Christians. That's not what Paul was saying earlier in his letter. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, he said... I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. No, what he was talking about was people inside the church who were there for devious purposes. They didn't share the same values. They didn't share the same faith. They were lawless. And Paul's saying that's the kind of person that doesn't belong in the assembly of the righteous. But consider that. Consider the fact that even Jesus, um, he associated with immoral people, right? I mean, that was one of the criticisms that the Pharisees and the, and, and the Sadducees leveled against him, is that he hung out with all these prostitutes and tax collectors and, and so on and so forth. But the thing is, those people were not his closest companions. They weren't even close to being his closest companions. 
Who we like speaks volumes about what we're like. If your closest people, uh, if your closest companions are people who don't have integrity, there's a very, very high probability that you are lacking in integrity as well. And David knew this. David knew this, which is why he appeals to this principle. He makes the case for his integrity before God, saying that the company that he keeps, his, his closest companions, were people who had integrity. Why is that important? Because bad company corrupts good morals. Birds of a feather, of a feather flock together. And we're, here's where we need to be very honest with ourselves, friends. Because as we, as we apply this principle in our lives, it's very easy for the flesh to creep in and to have it be driven by pride, by a sense of superiority or pridefulness toward unbelievers. And that can never be the case. That can never be the case. It's, it's easy for us to become very prideful and, and to say, to pray like the, the Pharisee prayed, uh, God, thank you so much for not making me like this person or that person or this guy over here. Christians can't pray that way. That's not what this is about at all. That's not what, what separation, this type of separation is about at all. See, this isn't something that's driven by pride, it's something that's driven rather by humility. By humility, because it's, it's motivated by an awareness that we have of just how susceptible, just how prone we are to be influenced by the people that we hang out with. If you recognize that you have a flesh nature, and that you have some weaknesses, and that you can be tempted to sin, and that there are specific sins that you might be tempted to commit, if you're smart, you're not going to want to hang out with people who would tempt you to do that. So it's not driven by pride, it's driven by humility, it's driven by a self-awareness of our weaknesses. We don't ensure that our closest friends are people of integrity because people lacking integrity don't deserve to be around, you know, to, to have us around them. Rather, we ensure that our closest friends are people of integrity because we're honest enough with ourselves to realize that we in our flesh are so, so weak. Too weak to withstand the temptation that comes from getting too close to people who don't fear the Lord and walk before him with integrity. Now this isn't to say that we should be unkind or ungracious to those who hate God. No, to the contrary, we are specifically instructed to love our enemies. Just as God shows common grace to his enemies by allowing them to breathe, by having rain fall on the righteous and the wicked, sun to rise on the righteous and the wicked, we should show grace to God's enemies as well. Remember the words of Paul in his, in his second letter to the church in Corinth. He wrote to them saying, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Do you get what he's saying there? He's not saying that we can't build bridges to the world. He's not saying that we can't have what you might call redemptive relationships. Relationships for the sake of, of sharing the gospel with somebody who's lost. 
But we should realize that in the minds of people who are lost, if we are living out our faith as we should be, we are carrying around us, by their perception, the aroma of death. Our presence, for them, is a constant reminder that they are under the judgment of God. That the day of God's wrath against them is coming. Our presence is a constant reminder that they are under the judgment of God. I mean, would you want to be close to somebody who smells like death all the time? Of course not. And neither does the world. But when you're close to fellow Christians, they don't think you smell like death. You smell to Christians like life. See, the scent is the same in both situations. You, you, you smell the same way, but the difference is the person who's perceiving your aroma. We must be in the world, but not of it. As Christians, we should not, indeed we cannot, identify with people who do not fear the Lord and who do not walk in integrity before Him. Not because we're holier than thou, but because we're aware of how easily influenced we are. And that's exactly why we should love and participate in the assembly of the saints every week. That's why we should gather as a church every week, because we're influenced by whoever we're spending intimate time with, either for good or for bad. Do you think it's a coincidence that all the lawlessness we see in society right now comes on the heels of churches across our nation being shut down for two months? Do you think that's a coincidence? It's not. It's not. There's a correlation there. And that's the principle here. And this was part of David's plea. His integrity is demonstrated both by who he loves to spend time with and by who he doesn't love to spend time with. Living a life of integrity before God isn't easy, but it does have a sweet, sweet reward. And that's what we're going to see next. Let's finish it up by looking at verses 9 to, tw- uh, 9 to, uh, to 12. He says, Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. What David's saying here is that he didn't want to be lumped in with the unrighteous because he didn't want to face the same judgment that the unrighteous face. Look at verse 10. See how how he saw sin and corruption characterizing their lives. He says, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, whose right hand is full of bribes. Full of bribes. It not just has a bribe. No, their right hand is full of bribes. He's talking about their life. He's talking about how their life is filled with corruption. He knew, though, he knew that God wasn't overlooking their wickedness, and he knew that their sin was not without consequence. David wasn't surprised that people who had no faith in God were lacking integrity, and thus he knew that he could not live like they do. That's why he comes back to his desire to walk purely and blamelessly before God, saying, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. See, the difference between David and those who lack integrity is his belief, 
his faith in God's awareness of what they're doing and the fact that he believed that God cares about the way that we live our lives. He cares about who we affiliate with. Integrity before God is driven by faith in God. And if you have faith in God, specifically if you have trusted in Jesus Christ through whom we have peace with God, then here's what you must know. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. You have his approval. Because you have the approval that Christ himself had with God. If you have the approval with God that Christ had, then you have ultimately absolutely nothing in the world to fear. Because he will not judge you alongside his enemies. David has separated himself from the wicked in this, li- in this life. And thus when God's final judgment, when his wrath is poured out one day, David will be separated from the wicked there as well. And this is the only way that any of us can have any hope of standing before God as children rather than as sinners condemned to hell for eternity. Not because we've lived perfect, upright lives. We haven't. Neither did David. I certainly haven't. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus lived a perfectly moral, upstanding, virtuous life of integrity. Perfectly. He lived up to God's standard, God's perfect standard for integrity to to a degree that we never could. And by faith, here's the thing, by faith, his integrity is credited to anyone who trusts in him, who believes in him savingly. His perfect integrity is credited to us and our sinfulness, our failure to live up to God's perfect standard of integrity is credited to Jesus where that sin is paid for in full. Friends, with cancel culture, you must repeatedly live up to the ever-changing standards of the culture or else. But with Christ, by believing in Him, by confessing that you haven't lived up to His standards, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are credited with having lived up to those standards before God. With cancel culture, there is no forgiveness. With Christ, there is complete forgiveness. With cancel culture, there's no assurance that your acceptance will last. But with Christ, we can rest assured that we are as accepted by God as Christ himself is. Not just today, but forever. For all of eternity. See, this is not... This is not a psalm about the importance of being a good, moral, upstanding person of integrity as much as it's a reminder that by nature, on your own, you're not. You're not a good person. You're not a moral person. You're not an upstanding person. You're not a person of integrity on your own. Whatever good you are, same as me, it's by God's grace. It's all by God's grace. You need Christ I need Christ, just as David needed Christ. You need Christ's perfect integrity. I need Christ's perfect integrity, just as David needed Christ's perfect integrity. And Christ offers it as a free gift to all who will savingly believe in him. When we savingly believe in Jesus, he will not only 
give us his perfect integrity, but our desires will also increasingly begin to align with his, which will result in our lives actually having a practical sense of integrity. It'll be played out in our lives. We have confident assurance with God, not because our lives are perfect, but because Jesus's life is. Jesus's life is. When we see our lives growing in in purity and holiness and blamelessness, our assurance is strengthened, yes, because we know that it's all by grace through faith in Christ. But faith increasingly corresponds with a life lived with integrity. As our faith increases, our practical integrity, our practical blamelessness increases with it as well. If you have savingly believed in Jesus, your feet, like David's feet, are on level ground, even when all of the world is against you and ready to cancel you. Your feet are on level ground. What does that mean? It means that we can trust that we will not stumble and we will not fall. We can trust that God will preserve us, that God will sustain us, that God will protect us, and that we will remain in good standing with him regardless of what the world might think of us. If you have trusted in Christ then you have peace with God. And if you have peace with God, then may it be your desire to live your life like an open book in His presence, under His authority, for His glory. If we have God's approval, then it doesn't matter who doesn't approve of us. He will hold us. He will vindicate us. He will preserve us. He will protect us. And for that reason, his approval, God's approval, is the only approval that matters. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it confronts us where we need to be confronted and yet where how it comforts us where we need to be comforted thank you for both conviction and assurance thank you so much lord for sending the lord jesus christ to be the one person who lived his life in perfect integrity perfectly upholding your law perfectly doing what we never could, what we can only repeatedly fall short of. And we thank you for the, for the beauty of the gospel and that his perfect righteousness is imputed to us by faith. Oh, what grace. We pray, Lord, that as we consider the magnitude, the depths of your grace in this regard, that it would change our whole perspective of life and our whole decision-making process. May our lives be a testimony to your greatness, to your grace, to your power to change even the vilest of sinners. 
And may it all be for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.